0: My stupid roommate. Can't you see the trash can? <laughs> it's right there. <sighs> she does this all the time. And look at all this dirty laundry. This takeout has been here for a week. Oh, here she comes. Maybe she'll apologize and clean up or something. What is up, Northridge Church? How are we doing this morning? Hopefully we're doing well. want to wish a happy Father's Day to all the dads. Can we do this at all of our campuses? Can we just give it up and celebrate our fathers this morning? Yeah. Happy Father's Day, Dad. You're worth celebrating. You know, it's something else that should be celebrated in the life of our church, maybe you had a chance to be here on Wednesday night, but our student ministry had their student baptism and we saw 25 students go public with their faith. And that's something getting a little bit, of, that's something worth getting a little rowdy in church and celebrating this morning. Can you do that with me? Yeah. I don't know if you know this or not, but being a teenager in our culture today is not an easy thing. And it's amazing to see our student ministry and these kids saying, hey, I'm not ashamed to follow Jesus, and I'll let all my peers and all my friends and family know. And man, if you're a teenager this morning, you're a middle schooler or a high schooler, I would challenge you, life is hard, high school, middle school is hard, and we want to help serve you, teach you what it means to follow God in in a culture that's going the opposite direction. And so get plugged into our student ministry. They got an amazing uh, summer calendar of things, events that are going on. Get plugged in and jump in. We would love to have you here this morning, and I just want to welcome you to Northridge Church, Webster and Greece, Arundelcoy, Henrietta. Those of you who are w- w- watching with us online, our guests this morning. We're honored to have you here this morning. And you know, I, when I was in college, I was with my buddy. We were jumping in my car, and we were going uh, some doing doing some shopping, and we're going to the mall. And I was in my Oldsmobile Alero, and we were traveling on on this highway. And this small highway was just two lanes led to an even bigger highway. And there was these lights all along this highway merging into the much larger highway. And so we we came to this stoplight and we stopped and there was this red Jeep Cherokee to our left. There was a woman driving with a man sitting next to her and we're sitting at this red light. Things are going well. The light turns green and we slowly begin to go forward knowing that the next light ahead of us is red. And so we're driving pretty slowly. And as we're driving, I notice that this Jeep Cherokee begins to slowly merge closer and closer to my car. And I'm thinking, okay, no big deal. They're gonna notice that they're crossing the yellow lines and and they're gonna correct themselves. And so I, I slowly drift my car a little bit to the right to avoid being hit. And I'm like, okay, they're going to correct themselves. But over the course of what seemed like a minute was really like more four seconds. They kept drifting and drifting into my lane. No turn signal, no looking to see if they can come over. They're just not paying attention. And so I'm moving over. And before I know it, I'm about to hit the guardrail. And so I decide to honk my horn and say, hey, move over. You're about to hit me. And they correct their car and go over into their lane. And so we get to about 100 yards later, we get to this next red light. And it's always that awkward moment where you're like, do I look? Do I not look? Like, what am I going to do here? And I probably, no, I did show, not probably. I chose probably to act a little poorly. Me and my friend, we look over. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, you almost hit us. And like, what's going on? Like, learn how to drive, bro. Like, what's going on? And, and what happened next was, was frightening. Is So I, I'm assuming the lady driving, her husband was sitting, sit, sitting in the passenger seat. And when we threw our hands up in the air, like, what's going on? He didn't like that. And so he just snapped. And he started screaming at us, words that we probably shouldn't say this morning. And he was going crazy. And then he grabbed his car door and he opened it and he was coming for us. And, and for my luck, you know, the guy who got out was, you know, just six foot five, jacked beyond belief. He was a bear of a man. And here I am, five, seven, like, oh, I'm going to die, Lord, I'm going to die. And so he gets out of his car and he's coming for my door handle. I'm like, oh oh no, that ain't happening today. I'm going to live. And I just gunned it out of there. I left and we just, we left. And my friend and I, we looked at each other and I was like, man, that guy's angry. He's got a temper. And here's one thing I know about anger is it leads to conflict. And we've been in this series, we started last week called Triggered. We're, that's really what we're talking about. Our topic is conflict, how we respond to conflict in a God-honoring, biblical manner. In week one, we were in Ephesians chapter four, and Paul kind of gave us his thesis statement for this entire series, that in our relationships, we should make all our effort, all our passion and time and energy should, going, should be going to holding fast, holding on to unity. Not making a point, not being right, but making peace in our relationships dealing with conflict. And here's what I know about anger. Is that the beginning of almost every conflict or response or reaction to conflict is anger. At the, at the very beginning of almost every reaction we have to conflict is anger. And, and, and I know, I know what you're going to say to this point is, I'm not sure I agree with that. Because I'm not an angry person. That's what I said when I first wrote this down and I first came up with this point. I was like, hey, man, I'm not an angry person. And some of us might have some tension with this point. Like, hey, at the end of the day, my my first reaction isn't anger. I don't deal with anger because I'm not an angry person. And that's how I would kind of define myself is I'm not one of those guys that that goes on these peaks and valleys of emotions. I kind of stay in the middle of the mountain. You can ask my wife. I'm not really, I I don't display my anger a lot. And probably a lot of us fit in those shoes, and so we don't feel like we deal with anger on a regular basis, but we often fail to realize about anger, is anger wears many masks. Anger wears many masks. You see, anger disguises itself, and a lot of times, the label we've placed in our culture on this word anger isn't always all-encompassing. Because here's the deal, I believe this, all of us deal with anger. We just express it differently. All of us deal with this emotion of anger, but it wears a different mask based on the person who's engaging with it. In fact, this morning, I want to walk through really four ways that we express anger today. And I've kind of given them a label. The first one is what I would call the Hulk. The Hulk. This is the obvious person. This is the person labeled in our culture today that has problems with anger because when they deal with the emotion of anger, they go crazy. They turn into this green monster who, much like the guy in my story, they just are obnoxious. They yell. They scream. You can tell that they're angry. And for most of you who deal with this, you don't need me to tell you this morning that you deal with anger because most people in your life have told you that. You're the Hulk. Everybody knows it. But the next three are are the ones that I think a lot of us, we wouldn't label ourselves angry because we deal with anger and we express it differently than the Hulk. The second is the stuffer. The stuffer, this is the person that deals with anger, and instead of living out that anger, we stuff it inside. We keep it inside. We don't tell anybody that we're dealing with it. I call this person the ticking time bomb because they hold in their anger long enough, and they build it up long enough, and then they explode. And so they express their anger by not expressing anything at all. They just keep it inside. The third way we deal with anger is we have what I like to call the pretender, this is the type of person that when they engage with anger, they just tell everybody everything's okay. Oh, I'm not angry. Like everything is good. And you want to know why they pretend is because they hate conflict so much that they will avoid any hard conversation. And so they'll just lie to people. No, everything's good. I'm not angry at all. I'm happy. They'll put on a smile. They'll put on their facade. But inside, their emotions are raging, but they don't want to deal with the conversation, the tension, so they'll pretend everything's okay. The fourth way is what I like to call the ninja. This is the person who deals with their anger, but they won't deal with the person who made them angry. Instead, they'll take their anger and talk to somebody else about the person who made them angry. And so what they do is they go behind that person. They don't want to deal with that person who made them angry. And so they'll justify their anger by talking to everybody else about that person rather than speaking to that person themselves. You see, the truth is, is none of us would probably label ourselves other than the hulks of angry people. But we express and we, we live out our anger differently. And what's interesting, and isn't in this series, we're in Ephesians chapter 4. In fact, if you got your Bibles, you can turn there, Ephesians chapter 4. And Paul gave us this thesis statement of, hey, we need to hold on to unity. But in Ephesians 4, later on, he talks about things that disrupt our unity. Things in our lives that, that create tension that abruptly disengage unity that we're supposed to hold on to. And you have to understand the context of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. Now, the the area of Ephesus was a large city in this day. It was about 250,000 people. And Ephesus was a pagan city. It was a city ravaged by conflict. And and what Paul is saying to, to the church, the Christians in Ephesus, is he's saying, hey, when you engage with conflict, the way you handle it should look differently than the society, the culture you're living in. Because in Ephesus... Everybody else, all the pagan people, when they had conflict, you know what they did? They did a-, a couple things. They would sue somebody, they would go to court, or they would just kill somebody. If they had enough power, they would, if they had conflict with somebody, hey, I'll just take you out. It won't be that big of a deal. And Paul is writing to this church saying, hey, the way we engage and handle and react conflict should look differently than the surrounding people around us who don't know Jesus as their personal Savior. And he begins in Ephesians chapter four, verse 26, to speak to anger that disrupts the unity that we're supposed to hold on to. He says this, he says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. And so Paul begins to speak to this emotion of anger. This emotion of anger because he's seen it do damage in relationships. And it's interesting that Paul, think about who this guy is. This is is a guy who dealt with anger. I mean, you think about the author here. We know him as one of the, the early Christian church leaders. But before that, he was a guy who dealt with anger. In fact, on his way to Damascus, he meets Jesus on the road and he was an angry man. He he hated Christians. He hated people following Jesus. In fact, he went to the, 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 the temple to get papers to throw Christians in jail, to have them killed because he was so angry of their beliefs. And here he starts. He says this. He says, in your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. And I think Paul makes an early clarification that we all need to hear. Because when we think in the church, we think of someone who's angry, we automatically equate that with sin. That's wrong. Being angry, Paul says, being angry is not wrong. Being angry is not something that is always wrong. He says, hey, in your anger, you have a choice. While you feel angry, when you're dealing with the emotion of anger, You have a choice. Do not sin. And so being angry for us is we have to understand as Christians, it's okay to be angry sometimes. There is a thing called righteous anger. We see it lived out in our Savior, Jesus. There's multiple examples of this. I'm going to give you two. Jesus came to the temple one day. And he saw the the religious people, money changers, taking advantage of people who are trying to buy sacrifices to follow God's law, and they were overcharging them to fill their pockets. And this is what happens. Jesus, in Matthew 21, it says, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And so right here, you see an example of what righteous anger looks like. Jesus is furiated with these money changers that he gets in there and he starts throwing things. I mean, he's throwing tables upside down and benches. He's got a whip. And you see this righteous anger. He wasn't just mad to be mad. He saw people taking advantage of people trying to follow God. And it ticked Jesus off. And you see, hey... Jesus never sinned. He never made a mistake. He never disobeyed God. And right here, he's living out anger that is righteous. We also see it in Mark chapter 3. It's interesting that most of the times when Jesus got angry, it wasn't with people who didn't know any better. It was with religious people, people who claimed to be Christians. Look at this in Mark chapter 3, verse 5. He says, he looked around at them in anger. Why was he angry? He was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, their hard hearts. And right here, you see Jesus living out a righteous anger. And Paul says, hey, in your anger, choose to not sin. And so that should lead us all to a question, because we all engage with anger. We've all had moments in our life where we feel that emotion coming on of anger. And so the question that we have to answer this morning is, how do I know if I've crossed that threshold of sin? How do I know that I'm living out righteous anger instead of unrighteous anger? And I think the big difference between righteous and unrighteous responses to anger deals with one word. It's called control. Control. The difference between righteous and unrighteous responses to anger is control. Let me explain what I mean. You see, as a Christ follower, if you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your personal Savior, you've made him the Lord and master of your life. You see, when you cross that line, of faith, When you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when that happens and it's genuine, something instantaneously happens. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. And from that moment on, you as a Christ follower are supposed to be guided, controlled by the Spirit of God. And so when you feel anger, when you engage with anger, you allow the Holy Spirit to control your response, to guide you, to direct you. But I don't know, maybe sometimes you're like me where when you feel anger, you kind of dismiss the Holy Spirit and you allow your emotions to lead you. You allow the hurt and the pain and the anger to guide your decisions, to control your response and the words that you use. You see, that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, in your anger... You have a choice. What's going to control you? Is it the emotion of the situation? Is it the feelings that are going to guide your decisions and your response to that anger? Or are you going to allow the Holy Spirit that's living inside you to guide you and protect you from living out unrighteous anger? And see, the, the, the difference really between a righteous and an unrighteous response is really what's controlling the way you respond. But Paul continues. He says this. He says, do not, he says, do not let the Son... Go down while you are still angry. And so he gets practical here. He says, in your anger, don't sin. And let me show you a practical thing that we have to learn. He says, in your anger, don't let the sun go down. Let me just make that simple. He says, don't go to bed by being angry. And I think for a lot of us in the church, we've interpreted this passage completely wrong. And I've been guilty of this when I was a newlywed. You see, I think for a lot of us, we interpret this passage as resolve the conflict before you go to bed. Like, that's, that's, how we, that's how we've interpreted it for years and years. I've got to figure out and, and solve the problem and answer the conflict before I go to bed. And my wife and I, when we were newlyweds, we would spend hours and hours and hours arguing up late at night trying to resolve the conflict. Because we knew God's word said, hey, you can't go to bed until you figure it out. But that's not what Paul said at all. He said, hey, get rid of your anger. He didn't say resolve the conflict. He said, let go of your anger before you go to bed. And I think for a lot of us, we have to learn that if we would just let go of our anger, that doesn't mean we have to resolve the conflict in this moment. In fact, a lot of times, my wife and I have learned, is when we let go of the anger, we get a good night's sleep, and we let the the conflict just kind of take a break. We wake up, and the conflict begins to resolve itself because the anger is gone. And Paul says, hey, don't figure out the conflict. He says, get rid of your anger before you go to bed. Don't go to bed angry at a family member. Don't go to bed angry because you never know what life's going to bring. You never know. Some of you, your biggest regret is that you lost someone you loved, and the last thing that happened was you were angry at someone. And he's like, you got to let go of your anger. And what he's saying is our response to anger often determines our relational destination our response to anger often determines where we're headed in the relationship and where the destination is going to happen. Proverbs speaks directly to this. He gives us this comparison. He says, Proverbs 29 verse 11, it says, fools give vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. I mean, he gives us a comparison. He says, fools, their response to anger is to let their anger rule. They give full vent to it, like, hey, let my anger steer me and drive me. But he says a wise person brings calm to the end. They they get control of their emotions. Ecclesiastes 7.9, it says, Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for for anger resides in the lap of fools. And we have to understand how we respond to this emotion of anger really determines the relational destination. And we felt the weight of that. But Paul continues. He says this. He says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. And really, at the end, he speaks into what happens when we live out unrighteous anger. He says anger gives the devil an opportunity. It gives him an opportunity to lead us down the path that we never thought we would go And the one thing about the devil that I think we often overlook is Scripture describes the the devil as a a roaring lion. But he's also much like a little mouse. You think about Rochester, you know, praise the Lord it's warm out. Um, But winter's coming. We all know that. Winter is coming. And and you think about wintertime. I don't know about you, but wintertime, I'm always trying to, I I live in a, a 1959 house. And there's all these little cracks that when it gets cold, all the mice seem to like sneak in. I don't know what it is, but I'm setting traps. And, and, and the devil is much like a mouse. He doesn't need this big, giant cr- crater to get into your life. All he needs is a tiny, little opportunity. And he will weasel his way into your life, and he will speak into it. He'll tell you, like, how, how dare you let them talk to you that way? How, how, well, don't let them say that. You show them who's boss. And all he needs is just a little opportunity and he'll take you places in your marriage, in your family, in your business with coworkers, in your relationships that you never thought possible. In fact, we see this in the Bible at the very beginning. Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God, God kicks them out of the garden, and they begin to have children Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel are offering sacrifices to God and Abel does it in the way that's pleasing to God, God honoring and God accepts his offering. But Cain, he shortcuts some things and God doesn't accept his offering and it leads Cain to this place where he feels angry. Check it out in Genesis chapter four, verse five, it says, so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not what is right, look at this metaphor. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. I mean, he's saying almost exactly the same thing Paul is saying. Hey, in your anger, in your anger, you have a choice. Sin is waiting at your door. It desires to have you. But here's the choice. You must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And right here, you see the result of anger. Now, I'm not saying that when you're angry, you're going to go out and kill your brother or your sister or your family. But do you know Jesus takes it to another level? He gives us a bar when it comes to anger. In the New Testament, he resets the bar for us. Look what he says in Matthew chapter 5 about killing. He says, you have heard that it was said to people long ago you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says brother or sister, raka, is answerable to court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. And Jesus, he, he sets the bar so high for us. He says, hey, you've heard, don't kill people. But I'm telling you, being angry at your brother or your sister, is almost the equivalent. He says that will cause you judgment. And he uses this term raka. Raka is an Aramaic term. This is the only time it's used in the Bible. And it means empty-headed. It was a, it was a term that they would say a lot of times in, in Aramaic to people that they wanted to, to use as a derogatory term. And he uses this term. It's, it's much like someone today calling somebody a fool. Or, or something else, something that is demeaned is a fully out of anger. And he says, anybody who uses this term is answerable to in court. Anyone who says you fool be in the dangers of fire of hell. And Jesus says, hey, anger is not something to be messed around with. It's not something that's, oh, you know, I'm just an angry person, not that big of a deal. Well, according to Jesus, it is a big deal. Because he knows the damage it can do in our relationships. And I think in the church, we need to take serious this idea, this concept, this emotion of anger. And if we don't get it under control, it will cause conflict. And that conflict will lead to places that we don't want to go. And we've experienced that. Some of us we've experienced it. Our anger has led to issues with coworkers. Our anger has led us to a divorce because we couldn't get it under control. Our anger has led us to issues in our family. I mean, we see it every single day in all kinds of relationships where, where people don't get control of their anger. And for a lot of us, we're like, I'm not angry. But we, 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 we sit around and we allow our anger to be stuffed inside. And eventually we just blow. And it crushes the people in our lives. We talk behind people's backs because we're angry and we don't want to confront that person face to face. We pretend like everything's okay, everything's great because we don't want to have the hard conversation. And it leads to destroying our relationships. It leads away from what Paul is calling us to, unity. So I think we have to come to this place where we understand that a biblical response to anger can keep us out of danger. A biblical response, a God-honoring response to this emotion of anger can keep us and our relationships out of danger. So what does that look like? Paul gives us the answer to that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. He says this. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. And so Paul doesn't give us this deep theological truth or even this practical truth. He just says, hey, you know what you should do with anger? Get rid of it. Don't waste time with it. Throw it out the window. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Don't give it the time of day. And here's what he's saying to us. We cannot allow anger to linger in our lives. We cannot allow anger to linger in our lives and in our relationships. You know, I kind of uh, think anger is much like a tree sapling. You know, in my backyard, we have a, a bunch of trees. We have about a half acre of, of woods behind our house, and it's just trees beyond trees. And when you come to some of these, these you know, semi-mature trees, you often find these little saplings they're kind of like little mini trees. And what the truth about these saplings are, they, they, they seem pretty insignificant. I mean, if you just let them go, no big deal, right? you got a massive tree there. But these little saplings, actually, if you allow them to stay where they are, they will suck all the moisture from the tree that is supposed to go to the tree, that's supposed to feed the tree, and they will grow into trees themselves, and they will kill the very tree that they birthed from. And Paul kind of says that it's kind of the same with anger. If you allow it, 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 at first it seems not like not that big of a deal. But if you allow it to stay around, it'll get bigger and bigger, and it'll eventually destroy the very things that you hold dearly to. So how do we overcome our anger? How do we win the battle? I think James speaks directly to this in James chapter 1. He says, everyone must be quick to hear and slow to speak. Slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And this morning, I just want to give you four practical steps in which we can win the battle of anger. And I think they come directly from James. And I think the first one, when we feel angry, we need to choose to pause. Choose to pause. James says to be quick to hear. And what I've realized in my own life is the only way that I can be quick to listen to people, to to listen to this person I'm in conflict with, is I have to pause a couple things in my life. I have to pause my mouth. I know for a lot of us, including myself, that's really hard. To actually just stop talking, to just shut up in the midst of conflict, to pause your mouth, because the only way you can listen is if you're not talking, to just be quiet. I think the other thing that we have to pause is we have to pause our emotions, Like, just just step back. Gain your composure. Think about what you're going to do before you actually do it. And, and, And I think the only way that we can do what James says to be quick to hear is we have to stop. We have to push the pause button. Gain our composure. Stop talking. I think the second thing he says is to identify. So we first, we pause. We gain our composure. We stop talking. And then we start to identify. We identify. What's the problem here? You want know, to know how you identify something? You ask questions. I mean, I think this would be a huge uh, help in a lot of our conflicts. Is For most of us, when we're in, in a fight or in an argument, the one thing that we do is we make statements. And in statements, they break dialogue. They shut down dialogue. When we are in an argument, we just make our point. And what happens is when we make our point, the other person in the argument just shuts down because they don't want to hear. But I'm telling you, what would help your conflict so much is if instead of making statements, we asked questions. Hey, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because I don't understand it. Hey, can you you tell me why you're mad? I'm trying to figure it out, but if we just learned in our conflict, in our businesses, in our neighborhoods, in in our schools, with our teachers, in in our relationships with our family, in our spouses, just when, when, when there is a conflict, instead of making statements and telling somebody they're wrong or you don't understand them, we just asked questions Why am I angry? What's the problem here? What's going on? If we just paused and identified what was going on, I think those two steps would help us dramatically. And then the third step, James says to be slow to speak. I think third, we express. We express our opinions. We express how we feel. You know, this is the step that we usually start with. We express ourselves. That's what we do in conflict. We want everybody to know how we feel, how we were hurt, how what they said damaged us. And what's interesting is when you choose to pause and you choose to identify, usually you've given that person a chance to speak. You've heard them and now they're ready to hear you so you can express your opinions and you can do it in a gracious and loving but yet truthful way because the other person has been heard. You've calmed your emotions, you've gained your composure, and now you can speak accurately without being bombarded by your anger. And what happens naturally next is you get to release your anger. It's not even a a choice you have to make. When you choose to pause, identify, and express how you feel, what happens naturally last is you release your anger. It goes away. Because the two sides were able to have a conversation, to speak to one another. And what's interesting is when your anger leaves, usually the conflict goes shortly afterwards. It's amazing. And this is why James says that. He says, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And isn't that what we're at this, after this morning, the righteousness of God as Christians? We're chasing after the righteousness of God. And so here's what I would challenge you to do this morning and this week is the first thing I would really challenge you to learn how you express anger. I think this is a big deal because I think for many of us, we walked into church this morning and we thought we could check out because we're not angry people. But I would challenge you, I think it will help in your conflict if you learn how you express anger. And if you don't know that, if you can't come to a conclusion on that, ask someone close to you. Ask your spouse, ask a friend, ask someone who you engage with in a relationship on a regular basis. Hey, how do you see me express my anger? Am I a hulk? Am I the person who just goes crazy when I get angry? Am I a stuffer? Do I keep it inside? Am I a pretender or am I a ninja? How do you express anger? I think knowing that fact will help you in your conflict. But then secondly, I would teach you and I would love for you to live this out. When we deal with conflict, that we would pause that we would identify, that we would express, and that we would release our anger. Because when we live this out, here's what happens. Ephesians chapter 4, we get to the place where we make every effort to keep the unity of spirit through the bond of peace. That's the goal. Unity. Unity in our relationships. Unity in the church. And anger can disrupt our unity, but only if we allow it. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for this morning. Thank you that you're a God who, in the midst of our emotions, you help us. Thank you that your word is so relevant. It speaks to the things that we struggle with, the things that we deal with on a regular basis, God. And so I pray that you would use this to transform us, to mold us into better husbands, leaders, fathers, mothers, coworkers, neighbors, and that you continue to guide us every single day. In Jesus' name, amen.